Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner, and this is a show for you. It's a show to help you understand the stock market and what makes it go up and down, to understand what economic data means when you hear it announced on the news. We also look at legislative issues that concern your money. I offer you financial planning topics so that you can understand different parts of your financial life. And finally, in the Ask Peggy section, you can send a question to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy, and I'll try to help provide some guidance on the air. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update, and this is for the week that ended on August 3rd, 2018. The Dow was just a little bit up, about a third of a percent. The S&P 500 was up over 1%. The NASDAQ was the biggest gainer for the week, up 2.56%. The reason the NASDAQ had such a better week than either the Dow or the S&P was, remember, the NASDAQ had a bad week the week before with the Facebook earnings issues, and then Twitter provided some guidance. So the NASDAQ had had a little bit of a correction. Last week, it was up 2.56%. I'm really surprised the NASDAQ didn't correct a little bit more than it did. Remember, it was only down about one and a third percent for the week. So it's still really on a tear. And that, you know, anytime something's going up a lot, you really have to be careful with it. You need to be sure that you're not getting in on the tail end of a bubble. I'm not saying the NASDAQ is a bubble, and certainly this isn't 2000. It's not like all of these technology stocks just have ideas and no earnings. But still, we've been on quite a run in the NASDAQ of late. Gold was down about a percent. And oil was down last week also, about one and a third percent. And oil being down suggests that at least for right now, things in the Middle East are a little bit calmer. There's some possible production issues coming up in the future. We'll look at that. We'll try to figure out what's going on. There wasn't a lot of economic data last week. Well, there's always a lot of economic data, but I mean economic data that I really feel like I should talk about with you. The jobs number came in a little bit softer than anticipated. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Certainly, it wasn't down enough to be concerning, but there wasn't a lot of jobs growth either, and so we're still kind of waiting to see whether or not the tax reform from last year can serve to stimulate that job growth, like everybody really hopes it will. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And if you listen to the show regularly, you know that I talk about markets looking forward. When the markets are trying to decide whether to go up or down, they're looking at events that are happening in the future. 
That's why when you ever hear the term leading economic indicator, the stock market is one of the strongest leading economic indicators because it's always looking ahead. As a result, when something happens, when good news happens, as long as that news has been anticipated, the minute it hits, the market reaction tends to be very muted. In fact, sometimes there'll be a run-up in the market on an anticipation of good news, and then the news hits and the market actually pulls back. So this is why when people don't follow the market closely, they'll hear a news story about how some stock beat their earnings. Maybe it's a stock they've always liked. And so they rush right in and buy because, after all, that stock just beat their earnings. And then they don't understand why the stock's going down, not up. Well, the stock went up. The problem is it went up in advance, in anticipation. The market anticipates. So when we were looking at the impact from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I said most of the market increase happened before the act actually passed. And I've said on the show it's going to depend really what happens as a result of that, you know, whether or not maybe there's um, unanticipatedly high earnings from that. That could lead to further market movement or the market needed something else. And I didn't see anything on the horizon. And this last week, there is a new story. It came out um, July 30th. The New York Times is a really good summary of it. But the truth is you can Google this topic and find it in any number of sources. So the idea that is being floated by the Treasury Department as headed by Steve Mnuchin, remember of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau fame, um, Steve Mnuchin is head of Treasury, and he wants to change how capital gain for stock market returns is calculated. So now let's back up just for a second and talk about capital gain. Remember, if you hold investments in a retirement account, like most of us do, okay? Most people don't have taxable investment portfolios. Most of us have um, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and things in our IRAs or our 401ks. Only if you hold a taxable investment account, not a retirement account, do you pay capital gains on your growth. And the capital gains rate has always been calculated very differently from income tax. It's a flat percentage. So if you buy a stock for $100 and you sell it for $200, then you pay capital gains tax. If it's long-term capital gains, for most people, it's a flat 15%. If it's short-term capital gains, which means that you held the investment for less than one year, then that growth is taxed at your income tax rate. So capital gains tax is sort of confusing already. Now, Steve Mnuchin and Treasury unilaterally want to make another change. They want to take inflation into account and subtract inflation from the gain that you made so that you'd have less actual gain to be taxed. So let's put this in like real words that make it easier to understand. Let's assume that you had um, a sock that you bought 10 years ago and you bought it for $100, and then today you sold it for $200. 
which means you still have that $100 gain, right? And assume you held it for more than a year because it's the 10-year time horizon, so it's the flat 15% tax on $100. What Mnuchin is proposing is calculating how much inflation occurred during that 10-year period. So making up numbers, let's assume that inflation has gone up 10% over the last 10 years. It's probably quite a bit higher than that, but just to make this math easy, because this is radio or maybe a podcast, so we don't want to have to get out a pencil and paper while we're driving. So assume that inflation was 10%. So what Mnuchin wants to do is take 10% of your gain, your $100 gain, so it would be $10, and not tax it. So that rather than paying capital gains tax on $100, you're paying capital gains tax on $90. So you're saving, in this example, 15% of $10. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but remember, people aren't doing this $100 at a time. It could easily be a $25,000 or a $50,000 transaction because, again, most of the people who trade an investment portfolio outside of their retirement accounts have quite a bit of money. In fact, um, research says that more than 97% of this benefit would go to the top 10% of income earners in the United States. And two-thirds of the benefit, so 66%, would go not to the 1%ers, but the 0.1%ers. So we're not even talking about the 1% anymore. Now we're talking about the tenth of a percent. And two-thirds of the benefit of this idea goes to those people. Well, this isn't the first time that this idea has been floated around. It was talked about back in the Bush administration, but the Bush administration decided that they could not actually legally change the definition of the word cost. What Mnuchin is proposing to do is change the definition of the word cost and add an inflation adjustment component to it. The general sense of things is that this shouldn't work. I say shouldn't because I've seen things work recently that really shouldn't have worked and they ended up working just fine. There's very little congressional appetite for this. In fact, this would be a unilateral move by Treasury. It wouldn't go before Congress, which means that one day they would just decide to do this. No doubt there will immediately be court challenges to this because it really isn't fair and it really, there's, there's a huge question. The Bush administration determined Treasury can't change the definition of words. Congress might be able to, but there's no way that this is going to pass Congress. Congress has already proposed the second set of tax initiatives that may or may not happen. Remember, I talked about those in an earlier episode where it was looking at ways of expanding out retirement savings. So that set of tax adjustments might not be that bad for the consumer. This is just sort of a harebrained idea to goose the economy a little bit more. You know, the advantage of this obviously is anything that's benefiting the stock market where gains aren't taxed as much would keep propelling it forward. My belief, and I haven't heard this anywhere, so you've heard it here first, I think they're just trying to keep the stock market good through November. The worst thing that could happen right now 
for the Republican-controlled House, Senate, and presidency would be a big stock market decline. And I don't see a big decline coming, but I haven't really seen anything that would make it propel forward a lot for the rest of the period of time between now and November either. I think Mnuchin is really just trying to play for time and keep the market up. I don't know if he believes he can do this or not. I'm sure he's going to try. As this plays out, I'll keep you informed. So the second thing I want to talk about today is really not exactly legislation because um, the CFP, Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, is not a legislative body in any sort of normal sense of it. It is, however, the certifying body for all CFP, Certified Financial Planner Practitioners. And I've talked about their new updated and enhanced fiduciary standard, which basically holds anyone who uses the designation to a fiduciary standard anytime they're talking to a client about money. It eliminates some of the loopholes where, well, is it really, are they really actually providing planning? And sometimes people were using this as a way not to have to act as a fiduciary. Well, now what they're saying is anytime people are giving advice, they have to act as a fiduciary. Well, since this is the what do words mean day, since Mnuchin's trying to change the definition of the word cost, there is a lot of question about what the word advice means. But in a financial planning context, there's very little question. This isn't just simply a broker that you call and say, buy me 100 shares of XYZ stock. A planner is at the heart and soul providing you with a financial plan. So this is really exciting, and they are holding public forums. Now, since this show originates out of Oklahoma, sad to report there aren't any forums scheduled for here. There is a chance that there will be one next year in Houston. Right now, the forums are on the coasts. I'll be very interested to listen to the public feedback in these forums because they're open to anybody. If you're in a town where there's a forum, you can go and it's free and you can listen and provide input. I think it'll be a really great thing and really raise the profile of being a certified financial planner practitioner, help the public understand what they do. So I'm pleased they're opening this up to the public. I'm pleased they're looking for public input. And I'm really glad they've made this change because it really does help the public understand what's going on better within the financial community. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk about individual retirement accounts or IRAs. IRAs are really great savings vehicles for your retirement. They can supplement a retirement plan at work or if you don't have a job that has a retirement plan at work, they provide you with some tax benefits for saving money towards your retirement. And what I want to talk about today are the IRAs that are not related to small business retirement plans. So I'm talking about traditional IRAs and I'm talking about Roth IRAs. 
Now, traditional IRAs are the IRAs we think about a lot when we say we put the money back in pre-tax dollars. We don't have to pay income tax on the money that we put back. And then the money grows. You can't touch it until you're 59 and a half. Then you can take distributions. I want to clarify a little bit about that because that's what people know about IRAs. And it's true, but there's some characteristics that you may not be aware of. So when you're looking at a traditional IRA, it can actually take two different tax treatments. You can put the money into it and then take the deduction on your taxes, or you can put the money into it and not deduct it. And what makes the difference? Well, what makes the difference is whether or not you have a retirement plan at work that you participate in and how much money you earn. Now, if you don't have a retirement plan at work, it doesn't matter how much you earn. You can deduct your IRA contributions off your taxes. But if you have a retirement plan at work and there's any money going into that plan for your benefit, then you need to make sure before you deduct your IRA contribution that you haven't earned too much money to be able to do it. So this is a question for your CPA. It's a good thing to talk to with a certified financial planner practitioner. Be absolutely sure before you take that deduction, you haven't earned too much money. Because if you have, then there's all kinds of penalties and things, and nobody wants to get wrong side out with the IRS. So if you don't have the retirement plan at work, you can always deduct your contribution. And if you do, it depends on your income. If you have no retirement plan of your own, but if your spouse has a retirement plan at work, and this is the literal definition of a spouse, someone you're married to, then there's also an income limit on whether or not you can fund an IRA and take the deduction. But it's a much higher threshold of income than if you had the retirement plan yourself. So be really careful when you're taking your deductions to make sure that you're not getting wrong side out with the rules. Why would anyone fund an IRA that they couldn't deduct? Well, the easiest answer to my mind is the ability to take that non-deductible IRA contribution and do a Roth conversion. Now, let's stop right there and talk a little bit about the Roth IRA. The Roth IRA has income phase-outs as well, but they're, they're high. They're actually the same level as if you don't have a plan, but your spouse does. So many more people can contribute to a Roth than can contribute and deduct their IRA. The income level of the Roth has nothing to do with whether or not you have a retirement plan at work. You can have five retirement plans. If you earn more money than their phase out, you can't fund a Roth, period. And since it's already after tax, you either fund your Roth or you don't. It's not like there's two or three different ways of looking at it. The nice thing about the Roth is it goes in after tax dollars and then the growth is income tax free if you are over the age of 59 and a half and the money's been in there for five years. 
So it gives you the ability of sheltering your growth from an income tax like what you'd have to pay when you took distributions out of your IRA. So when you take Roth distributions and you're over 59 and a half and it's been open for five years, your distributions are tax-free, all of it, because you already paid the tax on the money you put in and the growth is all income tax-free. Well, at an age, I know we're in an environment where we've had a lot of tax cuts recently. I still think there's a day of reckoning coming, and I think that income tax rates will go up, even past the sunset clause for the new Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, because eventually everything personal there goes away. I think there'll be income, I think there'll be income tax increases even above that. Because of the deficit. I mean, I'm not worried about it, but I do think that it's really possible right now that you may be in the best tax bracket you'll ever see, especially after the new legislation. So if you had the ability to pay your tax now and then let all the growth grow income tax-free, there might be advantages to that over putting it back in pre-tax dollars, letting the growth go in, but then when you take the distribution, you pay income tax on all of it. This is a complicated decision. And again, it's something you should make with your um, CFP practitioner. You should make it with your CPA. Be very careful how you decide to coordinate this so it works for you in the best way possible. Now, here's what's cool. Let's assume you don't have any other IRAs and you make too much money to fund the Roth. So what you do is you fund the non-deductible traditional IRA, and then you convert it once a year to a Roth. Now, they've just changed the rules. You used to be able to roll it back out if you'd made a mistake. They've undone that. So now, once it goes into the Roth, you can't roll it back to a traditional IRA anymore. So you need to do really careful tax planning, really careful income planning to make sure that you don't get yourself wrong side out on some kind of a rule. But you roll it into the Roth, and now you've actually made a Roth contribution regardless of your income level. I also like Roths because since the income is put in in after-tax dollars, you already paid your income tax on it, the IRS will let you take that contribution amount if you need it. You just can't touch the growth. So if you put in $1,000, it grew to $1,500, and you had an emergency and you really needed $1,000, you can take that $1,000 back out. Just leave the $500 of growth in there. So... Traditional IRAs can be deductible or not, depending upon your participation in a company plan or your spouse's. Roth IRAs only hinge on your income. It has nothing to do with plan participation, but it's possible to take a non-deductible IRA and do a Roth conversion. Now, if you already have a large IRA balance, talk to the CPA because things have to be prorated and it gets really complicated. But if you don't, it can be a pretty good strategy. You want to talk to the people in your life who help you with your money to make sure it'll work for you. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. 
And today's question comes from Trevor. And Trevor says, Peggy, when I told my friend I was buying life insurance, he told me to buy term and invest the difference. Is this good advice? Well, Trevor, like everything in financial planning, it depends. But I really want to talk about buy term and invest the difference to make sure you understand what it means and what you have to do to make sure that this is a successful strategy for you if you decide to pursue it. Buy term and invest the difference is very common among people who feel like sometimes insurance products are sold more to make a sale than they are to actually provide insurance coverage. And it might surprise you that I don't like it because really I don't like any rule of thumb. When you buy term and invest the difference, you're buying a term policy so you have insurance for a specific length of time. The minute that term is over, you don't have insurance anymore. So before you can even begin to make this decision, you need to look at your insurance need. Remember, the CFP Board of Standards says that insurance is designed to mitigate the financial crisis that would occur with your death. CFP Board doesn't see insurance as a savings vehicle or an, in, or an investment vehicle. They see it as a tool that you use to take care of what would happen to the people around you if you died. How much money are they going to need? So I think the best way to figure this out is from a cash flow perspective, looking at your income needs at different parts of your life, like until the kids are Um, ready to start college, then whether or not you want to help send them to college, and then the period of time for your spouse between when the kids aren't in college and they're ready to take the retirement benefit, and then finally when your spouse is in retirement. Additionally, you might have some other kind of odd needs, like a parent that might need care. More and more, I'm seeing people buy insurance policies to help protect their parents in case something happened to them because so many people are having to work with that as well. Or it might not be a spouse. It just might be someone you want to protect. Or maybe you want to leave a legacy to an organization when you die. So you really need to decide what you're trying to accomplish. If there is a permanent insurance need, that suggests that you might want to look at the costs associated with a whole life policy because whole life never goes away. It's permanent insurance. It goes in place. It costs more at the beginning, but many times it's cheaper than if you bought a term policy and you still had an insurable need and then you had to 20 years later turn around and try to buy another term policy where you might not be eligible to buy it at that point because of health issues. But let's assume that you think that it would be okay to have the larger amount of insurance for the term and then you're going to invest that difference. So you need to look at the cost of the term premium and the whole life premium because that difference is the difference in the cost of the premiums. Then you need to do some um, time value of money calculations and decide that if you took that difference and you invested it at a reasonable rate, is that going to be enough money at the end of the term to meet that need? And if it is, then this strategy might work really well. The problem is what I hear is people say, well, buy term, invest the difference, and it just kind of goes on down the road because the really biggest problem with this strategy is not investing the difference. 
People hear it, they see the cheaper insurance, and then the difference in the premium between the whole policy that they might have purchased but didn't and the term policy, it just stays in their wallet every month and they don't do anything with it. And if you have any kind of an insurance need that will occur after the term, that strategy won't work for you because you won't have the money laid back to meet the need. So the first question is look at your cash flow analysis, look at your insurance need, talk to the person who would be getting the policy, make sure that they think that these numbers work for them as well because you're really doing it to benefit them more than yourself. Then if you decide to buy term and invest the difference, make sure that difference is enough money and then finally go ahead and invest it because if you don't, this strategy will fail every single time. So just be careful and do it thoughtfully and don't just jump into a rule of thumb without following through and making sure it works for you. So I can't believe that we've gotten through another show. Exciting news tomorrow on August 7th, my book, 52 Weeks to Prosperity, releases. You can get more information on that on my website, PeggyDoviak.com. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.